given and giving. Let's begin with a prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us feel very comfortable thinking carefully about your will for our money. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't want to talk about it. Do you ever recall saying those words or hearing somebody else say those words? I don't want to talk about it. What kind of a situation would make those words come out from your mouth or from that of someone else? Can you think of a time when, when you've said, I, I don't want to talk about it? Maybe you can, can think of a moment where there was a conversation that you were dreading or where you knew that you were in trouble and you didn't want to get into that conversation. Like if, if you reflect on, like, what are the reasons that we end up saying something like that? I, I don't want to talk about it. We don't want to talk about something because it's something that we dread. Right? There's something about whatever we don't want to talk about that feels to us like it's negative. When it comes to money, uh, there may be a part of you that your instinct is, I don't want to talk about it. I don't even want to think about it. And it's because there's something. There's something that one is imagining is going to be bad once the conversation has begun. Today we're going to have the chance to hear Jesus speak to us and in connection with this idea of, I don't want to talk about it a little bit, I think. But we're going to start with a story that may be familiar to you or may not be. It's one of the stories that Jesus told when he was on this earth. And for many people, it is a very confusing story. It's in Luke chapter 16. I'm going to read verses 1 to 9. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So the manager called him in and asked him, what is this that I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So, he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 400. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. That is the story. Imagine reading that story for the very first time, and maybe it is the first time that you've ever heard it. But if not, imagine that this was your first time. You find yourself puzzled. The question that you ask is, what? What's confusing about the story? Maybe the first confusing thing is that the manager compliments the guy who stole his master's money. Like, what's going on with that? Maybe it's confusing because you hear this word shrewd 
like, why would anyone commend someone else for being shrewd? Isn't that some kind of a negative concept? Or maybe it's that very last verse, verse 9, where it talks about, like, using your money in the end so that you get to heaven? Is, is that how we get to heaven? By using our money in a certain way? Well, all of those questions in a way get at one of the sort of special features of stories that Jesus tells. So you think about what doesn't make sense and you try to figure out what in the world is Jesus trying to say, which I'm assuming should make sense, right? And it, it becomes very confusing. How do you know what Jesus means with a story? I don't know if any of the men out there have ever done this for their wives, or maybe, uh, ladies, there's been a time when this has been done for you, but just imagine this for a moment. Imagine that my wife is um, at her desk, and I come, and I come uh, come up from behind, and, and I put in front of her a beautiful red rose. And there's a, a pause, a quiet, and then my wife turns around and looks at me and says, that is the most thoughtless thing that you have ever done. And I'm confused. And then she goes on, like, what are you, what are you trying to say about me? That you can't get close to me? That I'm, that I'm, I'm prickly? That you, and I'm, okay, so there is a stem to that rose and there are thorns on that rose, but Right, that that would that would never be the thing that someone would say who was given a rose. They would see the beauty, the the color. They they would ex uh, understand it to be an expression of love. And in fact, if if I once I gave my wife the rose were to say, well, actually no, like it's not just a, an expression of love. Like there's something way bigger behind what I just did. Like look at the color of that rose. It is red. That is the color of blood. Blood is at the heart of what it means to be alive. I am telling you that you are my very life. Well, that may be incredibly romantic, but is that what we mean when we give someone a rose, right? You can take a symbol and you can misunderstand it by looking at a part of that symbol that isn't ever intended to be the focus, or you can make it way more than what it really is. This is exactly what is happening when Jesus tells these stories. There is a key reason for him to tell the story. And if we look at some of the, well, the thorns or the stem or something like that, and then draw conclusions based on that, that is not what Jesus was intending to focus on. That there's one key focus, and then all of the other details in the end are really speaking. They're, they're just kind of decoration. They end up making the story more real. They give it life. They give it vividness. And they draw the attention of the hearer. So when we look at this story, what lesson does Jesus want his disciples to learn? Well, he does tell them. He says, use worldly wealth to gain for yourselves friends. But he sort of tells them what the point is even before verse 9. He reflects on the people of this world and he says they're more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than the people of the light. Jesus' children, believers are. The manager commended the dishonest, and he was that, he commended him because he acted shrewdly. 
Now, when you hear the word shrewd, you might think of something that's like it's got to be a negative word, right? We maybe even think of the word shrew, like it's not really a part of that word, but just the sound of it feels negative to us. So the word that is actually in the Greek is very closely connected to another Greek word. It's the, the, the word it's connected to is frain. So frame, like a picture frame, but put an N on the end instead. So the word frain is like your mind. It's the thinking part of you. And so the, the manager commends this dishonest guy because he was frontimus. He was a thinking man. That's what Shrewd intends to focus on. He was a thinking man. He thought about his future and he realized, I need to do something now so that I am ready for that future. He based his decisions in the moment on what he knew to come in the future. This is what Jesus is teaching his disciples. He says, I want you to be thinking people when it comes to money. Like, have you felt like, I just don't want to talk about it. I just don't want to talk about money. That makes me uncomfortable. And you're dreading something about it, right? In our sinful flesh, it does have something to dread because it automatically assumes that, well, like, then I can't be selfish anymore. I can't think of my, myself first. And, and of course, sometimes we fall into that trap and we do think about our things only from the perspective of how it can serve us or some some other wrong view. But as someone who knows that that's wrong, and as someone who rejoices that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us of all of our selfishness, and as someone who knows that the new person inside of them is so eager for God to tell us the truth and we want to live by the truth, Jesus is saying to his disciples, of course you want to be a thinking person. Of course you want to think about the future as you're thinking about how to act right now. Like, you're smart, just like that guy who got fired from his job and did everything he could to try to preserve his future based on what was available at the time. So that's one big thing. God is encouraging us to positively, joyfully be thinking people. How are we going to use our money to pursue our eternal goals? And now what is the eternal goal. He says, well, you can use your money to win friends for yourself who will welcome you into eternal dwellings. That we can use an earthly thing like money to play a role in someone ultimately coming to know that Jesus is their savior too, and then they end up in heaven also, and then they meet you, and they know that you gave money to make it possible for them to come to know Jesus as their Savior, and it's almost like Jesus says, they're going to run up to you and give you the biggest hug in the world. That you used your earthly wealth to help me become a child of God? That's crazy. And it's so wonderful. Thank you. Can you imagine a moment like that? And where you're thinking, wow, like how, how could I use my worldly wealth to make something like that possible? And one of the well, I suppose one of the most obvious ways that happens is when, when you contribute your money to the sharing of the gospel. As you give money to a church that is eager to confess clearly the truths of God's word to everyone. And maybe some of that money goes to support your pastor who is active and encouraging and showing people their sin and showing people their Savior and rejoicing in the life that we get to live for Jesus and maybe 
that individual or someone who comes into your church finds out about Jesus and then they die and they end up in heaven. And can you imagine the moment where, I don't know how they would know, but like, are we all going to have like little name tags on our heads that alert someone to realize that there was a, a gift that we gave that ended up playing a role in them coming to faith in Jesus? Like, I don't know how that will all work. But for you to give a gift to support the spreading of the gospel. What a wonderful way to use your worldly wealth to gain for yourselves friends who will welcome you into eternal dwellings. I don't know that that's the only way, though, where you can use your money in order to pursue your eternal goals. Like, what if, what if you have a neighbor and he likes to grill and brats, like, you know they're a thing for him and you're at the store and you see some brats and they're your favorite kind and you buy some for yourself and he's like, ah, you get three extra packs. When you get home, you know he's home. You stop by and you say, hey, you know, I was at the store. I, I know you love brats. These are some of my favorite kind. I'd like you to have some. Out of the blue. Like, why are you doing that? You're doing that because you love to show love. You love to reflect the fact that Jesus was generous to you and, and you just want to care for the people around you. Like, could it happen as it becomes obvious your care for others is just worn on your sleeve that maybe an individual is puzzled by this and is really pr profoundly affected by this and they end up coming to you and saying, what, why do you do this? Where you can share Jesus. Has that ever happened to you? Where, where you just got a gift out of the blue? If it, if it has, how did that make you feel inside? There may be some moment that you can recall. It may also be sort of hard for you to think of a moment like that. And, and maybe that says, it doesn't happen that often, where you just get a gift out of the blue. Like it's not a regular Christmas gift that you receive from your parents where you're surprised by it. But no, this is a gift that you completely unexpected. The fact that it doesn't happen very much, may speak to why one can be so profoundly affected when it does. And for you to realize that you can surprise people. And out of love, not out of manipulation, just out of pure love, to think of something nice that you can do for someone else. Might that be one of the ways that you use your worldly wealth to win for yourselves friends who ultimately become, with God's blessing, friends in Jesus and they'll be in heaven too. Like what a wonderful perspective on life. Temporary earthly things, like dollar bills, things that in the end will one day be destroyed and you surely will not take them with you at your death. The fact that earthly things can be used to help people for an eternity. Now, as Jesus teaches his disciples that beautiful truth, he goes on, to offer some kind of very direct words that he wants us to hear. So after explaining, like, use worldly wealth to gain for yourselves friends so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. He then says, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. 
either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus is speaking pretty plainly here, isn't he? One of the temptations for a Christian is they feel that they can both love God and love money, and that there's some way that both can be in play and all is good. And so Jesus, out of love, is saying, I just want you to know, like, that can't happen. That, that, is, that is an unreality. And he helps us understand why that's true by taking us on a little, little walk. So the first thing to know if you're looking at your Bibles is that verse 9 so, you know, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself who welcome you into eternal dwellings. Is Verse 10 is very closely connected to that. And verse 10, it says, trusted with little, trusted with much, not trusted with little, not trusted with much. If you've ever been in a business and had an employee working for you, and maybe they do an expense report, and you see the expense report, and you can tell that they're kind of playing around the edges of honesty with it, it may, may very well be the case that you would not think of that person when looking to promote someone to be responsible for more of your company's finances. If one cannot be responsible with little things, why would they be responsible with big things? But, but here, Jesus isn't talking about like a little money and a lot of money. He actually explains what he's talking about when he goes to the next verse and says, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? So, the worldly wealth and true riches, the little thing is the worldly wealth, and the big thing is true riches. Faith in Christ as your Savior, that gift of God, the promises that God has given us to work all things for our eternal good, the gift of eternal life, right? Those, those true riches, those that truly belong to you, they are yours which will be yours forever. That, that's true riches, the treasure of the Word of God and its promises. Worldly wealth is the little riches. What Jesus is saying to us is, if you have not been responsible with earthly things, money, who would ever give you big things? If I haven't been responsible in using my worldly wealth with my eternal purpose in mind, then what would make me think that I could be responsible with something far more valuable than that, the gift of eternal life. You see what Jesus is saying here? Let us not think that we can straddle, that we can be unfaithful with our worldly wealth and love that, and yet still think we're okay with God. He goes on to explain that if you haven't been trustworthy with the worldly, right? And then if you haven't been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you what is your own? The money we have doesn't belong to us. It's God's money. He made us. He gave us all the things that we have. The thing that really is our own is faith in Christ. It's, that's, that's ours. The promise of eternal life, that's ours, right? If, if I think I can have both loving money and loving God, Jesus is here to tell me that's a lie. You can't love God and money. Have you ever, have you ever thought you could? Surely we, we confess to the Lord that there have been times when we have loved earthly things more than we have loved God. And to realize that I can't do both is to confess to the Lord. I, I really would have no right to expect that I can be your child. 
I have not loved God as I should. You know, what, are, what, a, what an amazing thing it is as God convicts us of our sin, that he is, he is there to remind us that Jesus is our Savior. He's our Savior because he properly handled worldly wealth and never loved it more than God. And in your baptism, God blesses, gives you credit, clothes you in the robe of Jesus' righteousness. And as his blood cleanses us from all of our sin, all of the things we're ashamed of when it comes to the way we've looked at our possessions, washed away, you have the privilege of starting fresh, perfectly clean. And now you hear this and you say, like, that is a trick when the devil, my sinful flesh, tries to get me to love money more than God. I, I don't, I, I hate, I, I don't like that trick. Like, I see it for what it is now. Of course I want to use whatever worldly wealth I have to pursue my eternal goals, right? So as Jesus spoke these, these words, like kind of laying it right out there, there were some people listening, and they weren't his disciples. Verse 14 of Luke chapter 16, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. They had a reaction, and it was a negative reaction. And now what I read next may sound to you like, okay, like how in the world is that all connected to what just happened? But, but it's connected. So I'll go back and we'll talk through how it, how it flows. But So the Pharisees who love money, they were sneering at Jesus. So Jesus says to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And now you're thinking, okay, like what just happened there? I thought we were talking about money. All of a sudden we're talking about divorce and remarriage to someone who was unfaithful to her husband, right? It feels like, what's the connection here? But follow, follow along again, going back to verse 14. The Pharisees loved money. They were making fun of Jesus. Jesus says to them, you're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men. Like you pursue approaches that make other people think you're good. And, and a love for money is certainly uh, very consistent with the way the world thinks about it, right? God knows your hearts. You are acting in ways that people can understand and approve of. But God knows what's going on, the, going on on the inside. You are loving money. And you are not loving God. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. God hates viewing earthly wealth as of primary importance. Not because he hates you or me. He hates it because it's a trick. It's deception. It's setting people up for losing out on eternity while they think they are trying to accomplish something in time. To the Pharisees, Jesus goes on. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. There was this like whole track of Old Testament prophets and Moses, and, like all of that information from God. John the Baptist is kind of this pivot between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And since John the Baptist now, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached. And Jesus was doing that. He was preaching the good news of the kingdom. And then Jesus says, everybody's trying to force their way into it. 
like on their own terms. They all want to be part of this kingdom of God, but they want to hold on to their their wrong view of life. And for the Pharisees, this wrong view of money, that you can love God and love money at the same time. You cannot force your way into the kingdom of God on your own terms. Jesus says to them, it's easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out from the law. God's will is not going to be changed by your desire to force yourself into God's family on your terms. God's will about using money for eternal purposes, not for self-satisfaction only in an earthly realm. That is not going to change, no matter how hard you try to suggest it should. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. Pharisees, you have gotten in the habit of changing God's law in order to force yourself to make it appear like you're part of God's kingdom while you're simultaneously doing what is evil. The Pharisees were very well known for their views on divorce, which had, in the end, Jewish religious teachers saying that it was okay even to divorce a wife just because she wasn't pretty to you anymore. You cannot take away one part, even the smallest, from the will of God. We know, as Christians, that it is so easy to get trapped into a worldly way of looking at wealth. Because we have a sinful flesh, and that is that little unbeliever in us. Thank the Lord that he has created a new person who loves God and sees that as wicked. When you think of someone from an unbelieving perspective completely, how does an unbeliever's perspective on money differ from that of someone who has been brought to faith in Jesus? Like, what would you say? And sometimes we might look at someone who isn't a Christian and say, well, like they're doing everything they do just to serve themselves. Except you might know people who don't love Jesus who are so eager to help other people and to make the world a better place. And, and now you might get confused. Like, what is different between a believer and an unbeliever? Well, what did Jesus say was the proper shrewdness or thinkingness of a Christian? What, what characterizes a Christian who's thinking properly about worldly wealth? Eternal objectives when money is used during time. This is what someone who doesn't know Jesus will never have in mind. They may be the most outwardly generous giving person. But if they are giving their gift, only imagining that the impact is in time, they are not understanding the purpose of money. The only use of money that makes sense is when it is used with eternity in mind. Jesus, as you can imagine, his emotion rising, speaking to these individuals who were making it seem to others like they were on God's side, but they were living in a way that was so different from God's. It was an earthly view of money, not an eternal view of money. He has a story that he tells. He tells the story of a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, lived in luxury. This is the end of Luke chapter 16, and there was a beggar at his gate. 
longed to have some food. One day the beggar died, and he went to Abram's side, and the rich man also died, and he was buried. He was in hell, and he was in torment. And in this story that Jesus tells, so this isn't giving us a sense of, like, this is exactly how heaven and hell work, or anything of the sort, but just in this story that he tells, this man is begging for mercy as he is in hell. And Abraham tells him, well, you had good things while you lived. This other, his name was Lazarus, had bad things while he lived. He's, he's in heaven, and you are there, and there's a great gulf between us. We can't bring you water to make you feel better. And the guy in, in hell then says, oh, like, okay, please do this. I've got five brothers. Apparently they were living the same way that he was living. Please go have someone to tell. Tell them. Tell them what, 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 this, what this leads to. And Abraham said they have the Bible. Like they have what they need. And even if someone were to come back from the dead and tell them, they won't believe that person if they don't believe the word of God, Moses and the prophets. So what do we have in this story? We have a man who had lots of wealth and a man who had no wealth at all. They both die. The man who has lots of wealth, well, the man who had none died outside. But he was taken to be with his heavenly father. The man who had lots of wealth maybe died in a beautiful bed and he ended up in hell. What is Jesus saying to us? Life only makes sense when I have in mind eternity. There was a longing of that man to go back and have someone tell those who were still alive on this earth Please understand that nothing makes sense unless you are viewing it from the perspective of eternity. Moses and the prophets have said the very same thing to you. We are still on the side of time. We have had the messengers of God through his word come to us and speak the truth. That you, when it comes to your earthly possessions, aren't saying, I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to think about that. You're saying, I want to be the smartest, thinkingest individual there ever was. I want to be smart, to use my worldly wealth with eternity in mind. Let's close with a prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for speaking to us clearly and in love. Forgive us for the times when we have wrongly understood how we are to view the earthly blessings you have given. Thank you for your forgiveness and thank you for the clear thinking. Help us do everything we do with eternity in mind. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.